0: There's such an incredible sense of duty and hard work that you find in the military that comes across and i felt that i was part of something bigger when i was in there i was so immensely proud to be among and with military medicine
1: welcome to war Dogs, the military medicine podcast this show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Fox News journalist and war correspondent Benjamin Hall to War Ben was reporting near the front lines in Ukraine when his team was attacked by Russian forces, and he sustained life-threatening injuries and two of his colleagues were killed. Ben describes his harrowing journey from the point of injury in Ukraine through the evacuation chain through Poland to Germany and ultimately to Brooke Army Medical Center in San Antonio for definitive treatments of injuries, including the loss of parts of his leg, his foot and hand as well as burns elsewhere on his body. He talks about his experience with military medicine during the treatment, recovery, and his rehabilitation from his injuries at the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio. Ben has a tremendously positive attitude and has shown amazing courage throughout his ordeal and is truly thankful for the tremendous care he received from military medicine. He tells his incredible story here on Wardocs. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today we're privileged to welcome Fox News journalist Benjamin Hall to Wardocs. Benji, thanks for joining us today.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: So Ben, tell us about your background and how you decided to become a reporter.
0: I think it all started off when I was a young boy. From the age of five or six, I was always interested in travel, meeting other people, telling stories, trying to experience as much as I possibly could in the world. And I think that it was while doing that that I realized that I wanted to tell the stories of the people that I found interesting, whether that was the hard stories positive stories, medical stories later in life. That's what journalism was for me. First of all, it was something that allowed me to meet other people. It was something that allowed me to experience new things. And then after that, I started to realize how important it was for society in general. And I think that it's essential that we have an important news set up and that it's essential that we keep it going.
1: So what sparked your interest in becoming a war correspondent?
0: In some ways, it also started when I was young. From a very early age, my father and I would sit and watch countless war movies. My father himself was born in the Philippines. He was there during World War II in a Japanese prison of war camp from the ages of eight to, till 12. And most of his family were killed by the Japanese. During the Battle of Manila in 1945, he was rescued by American troops. He was running through the bombed out streets of the city with his siblings younger than him. And he was just desperate like a street urchin, just trying to stay alive. And he finally made it to the American lines and he was picked up by the infantry there and he was hugged and saved by a a GI. And from there, he moved to the US, went to university, then he served in Korea and has been an incredibly proud member of the US military his whole life. And so I grew up with these stories, with the stories of how brave soldiers were around the world, how it had saved his life, how it came to define my own life. And so when I started being a journalist, those were the stories I wanted to tell. Those were the things that fascinated in me. The fact that people can lay down their lives for the sake of good, to hold back tyrants, gives us all our own freedom. I feel and I believe that very passionately. That's where the stories took me. Of course, when I started being a journalist, it was around 2007. One of my first trips was to Iraq. And from then on, I covered most of the wars whether it was Iraq, Afghanistan, or down to Somalia, Libya, as many of them as were happening at the time. It was something that I always wanted to do. And it was the aim that really led me to the job. Ironically, my father was then saved when he was 12 years old. He was saved by American troops. And I very much felt that all these years later, in 2022, I was then saved by US troops. And I escaped from Ukraine. I crossed the border into Poland. And there was the Black Hawk, and the US picked me up. And they gave me my life back. And so the similarities there between my story and my father's story are really fascinating to me. And again, just really ever further digs in that real strong patriotic value.
1: So give us a little bit of behind the scenes look into how does reporting work in a combat zone? Do you get special access? How do you get around? How do you keep yourself out of trouble? How do you keep yourself safe?
0: I suppose it depends at what point in your career you are. When I started off, I was a freelancer and I didn't have much experience and people don't buy your articles. And at that point, it's as simple as just buying a plane ticket, getting out to wherever the story is happening, and then trying to tell stories that no one else is telling. In many ways, the only way to do that is to go places and to tell stories that no one else has managed to reach. That is either closer to the front lines, it's behind enemy lines, it's getting places and spending longer with more people. And so early on, It was really just find your way to get somewhere. It was hitchhike across countries. It was try and get to places that no one else had gone. And it was a matter of finding a local fixer, someone who knew the area, who you could pay for a little bit and who could start setting up interviews with you. And then it was just embedding with whichever rebels you could find. As your career then progresses and you start to move to working for newspapers and eventually for me with Fox, then a lot more doors are open to you. So you can land in a country and within a couple of days, you're interviewing the president and you embed with the troops. So you can embed with the US forces as well. And that becomes a very different kind of journalism. There are many positives to it. Of course, you're talking to some of the highest politicians in the country and you're embedded with the troops. But at the same time, you often go in for a lot shorter periods of time. And I often found that sometimes when you're sitting down and talking to a president, you're going to learn a lot less than if you sit down and you talk to the average soldier or the rebel or someone who's on the ground. I love both sides of the career. The freelance years and then the Fox years were very different. But I think you need to understand both to move and to work successfully in war. And covering war is not like telling a story back home. You have to be really flexible. You don't know where the story will take you. It changes all the time. You don't know when you can send your pieces out. You have to be very flexible. You have to be able to move. You have to be able to know what is interesting in the stories, but also why those stories are interesting to your viewers or to your readers back home. It's very hard, for example, to write a story on the tribal rivalries in Syria that will interest my general viewer. But if I can spin a good story in war, I can tell you why the knock-on effect could lead to the, for example, the harboring of terrorist groups or something else, and then you can tie it further in. I found, for me, covering wars was absolutely fascinating. It was about the military, it was about the boots on the ground, it was about the armed forces, but it was also about the families who were caught up, some of the families who have nothing to do with the war. And so you're balancing these two really important parts and trying to make sense of them and try to send that story on to others.
2: So you'd mentioned that you'd previously had experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I've watched many news reports from combat zones on TV. But I didn't really fully appreciate the danger that went into combat zone reporting until I was actually in a combat zone in 2016. I was actually in southern Afghanistan. I was a split forward surgical team. And Pulitzer Prize winning photographer David Gilkey actually left out of our forward operating base into Lashkar Gah, Afghanistan. And that's where he and his translator were killed by the terrorist insurgents that were in that city. How exactly do you go about trying to figure out how you're going to embed yourself with these allied units or other entities to make sure that you're able to get the good story, but also keep yourself safe?
0: That's the most difficult balancing act, really. Part of you knows that to get the best stories, you have to be right up at the front. How can I really tell the story of a soldier who's in combat or a family that's caught in the middle, unless I'm there experiencing what they're experiencing, unless I can see that, unless I can feel those emotions as well. So you have to be there if you want to be a good journalist. There's no two ways about it. I would say that a journalist who doesn't get there on the ground is a journalist who's not doing their job properly. But balancing that is very difficult. When you're running around as a freelancer, and you don't have family back home, there are risks that you can start taking that you will take, to get the stories. And then as you move on and you start to have a family and you say you work for someone like Fox, then you suddenly have big organization around you. You have more camera gear to move, for example, and it becomes harder to move so quickly. So that changes as well. But if you are a journalist and you are driven by the story, then very little is going to stop you trying to get that story. You can't half write a story and then try and finish it off unless you've experienced it. I think it's naturally in all us journalists to want, to need, to have to go and see it, have to see the end, have to be alongside people when it happens, or else we're not doing our jobs.
1: So we're both military background. And one of the things the military does really well is contingency planning. We've got plans for every possible thing that could possibly happen downrange. How much planning does a war correspondent team do for potential injuries? Do you have an evacuation plan? How much is that in your thought process and planning when you go out and put yourself in danger?
0: Well, certainly with Fox, we always had security with us. That would always be from US or UK military previously. Almost every day you would talk about that at the beginning of a trip, you would go over the fail-safes, how to stop someone bleeding out, go through your med kit, know exactly how you should respond. And then every year we would take uh, med kits back home in our bureaus. So you were always preparing in that sense. And then I've, of course, done a hostile environment courses as well, where you learn a fair amount. You won't learn as much as you will when you're actually in war, but there are a whole lot of processes in place so that you know what's coming and what might potentially happen. You certainly plan from the medical side as much as you can. Logistically, you have to always know that you'll have a couple of cars with you, simple things like that. You don't want one car to break down and then not to have another way out. You also want to know that you've got constant contact with your base or with your bureau back home. In an ideal world, you'll have your sat phones, you'll have your two-way radios, GPS. You just try and take as much of it that you need as you can and try and cover every base. If you're embedded with someone, then of course, you have to put a lot of that faith in them. You've got to work closely with them. And that's where those relationships become really strong. As you guys well know, It's about the people on your left and right when you're out there, and you have to know that you're going to help whoever's next to you and that they're going to help you. And it's that sense of real loyalty that I think makes a good combat journalist.
2: Tell us about your reporting and your team and the events leading up to
0: the time before you were injured. Well, we had been in Ukraine for a few weeks at that point, and Fox had sent a number of different teams in there just before Russia was invading. And the State Department had already said that the invasion was going to happen. We got a lot of teams out onto the ground based in Lviv, the city in the West. And we had two teams in Kyiv as well. So there must have been about 20 or 25 people from Fox in country. Usually we travel, one team travels by themselves for most other stories, for example. So you'll have a cameraman, a producer, a correspondent and a security on this case, we had varying teams. We had producers, correspondents who would all mix and match depending on where you needed to go. And so it was a really flexible, really fluid, really well set up scenario. And then when we moved into Kiev, which I wanted to say was around March the 4th, maybe a little bit before, Russia almost had the capital city, Kiev, surrounded. Fox had taken the producers out of Kyiv, and it had a really skeleton crew in there. The feeling was at that point that Russia was going to capture Kyiv, they were going to capture Ukraine. We changed the setup slightly, and we went in there, and there were just two correspondents, two cameramen, and two security. We were the ones doing the on-the-ground reporting straight from inside Kyiv, and then the other teams were doing some of the longer-style reporting from outside and to the west of the country. So it was a really flexible scenario, and it was one that we set up knowing the threats that were surrounding Kyiv itself and knowing the safety of the West of the country.
1: So take us a little bit through that day that you were injured. What was going on? What was your team doing? And what do you remember about the actual explosion or attack?
0: Well, we had decided to do a story on the defenses that were being built in Kiev itself to prepare for the Russian invasion. And there were a number of trench systems that were being dug within the city, but just towards the outskirts. So myself, Pieczek the cameraman, and Sasha, our fixer, we went to see and to film these trenches. We had met up with some of the Ukrainian press liaisons in the military just beforehand in the city center, and we followed them out to see these trenches. When we got there, the officer in command said that we weren't able to film those. They didn't want any news getting out, understandably, about how the city was preparing. And so the two press liaisons, the Ukrainian officers that we were with, said, well, we can drive a little bit further. We can get to this abandoned village that has been bombed by Russia in the last couple of weeks. Ironically, it was one of the few stories, a few trips I'd done where I was not trying to go near the front line. We had made this decision that that wasn't the story we wanted to do on that trip, that I was anchoring a show. So I would anchor from the hotel. We would just tell stories from inside Kiev. But we ended up moving to this other abandoned village. And we filmed for a while. We filmed these churches, the schools all bombed to the ground. Total ghost town, not a single person there. And we were driving around for about half an hour. We'd finished our work. We were driving back in towards Kyiv, towards the city outskirts. And we came upon a roadblock, just three long pieces of concrete, one after the other. So you have to slow your car down so you can do a big U to get around it. Just as we slowed down and start to turn, the first bomb, we're not sure at this point whether it was from a drone or whether it was artillery, landed about 30 feet in front of us. Big explosion. A small tree starts to fall down. We know immediately that we're being targeted. It was so close. And so immediately screamed to get the car into reverse to go backwards the car stalled. The next second, Pierre shouts, everyone get out of the car. And then as soon as that happened, the second one landed right alongside the car. I went black after that. I wasn't knocked out. I was just total black place. And out of nowhere, I heard my daughter's voice. She said, daddy, you got to wake up. You've got to get out of the car. I opened my eyes, took a few steps, tried to get out of the car. And a couple of steps out of the car, the third one hit the car itself. The next thing I know, I wake up and I'm on fire. And so I'm trying to put the flames out of my legs. My right leg has been largely gone, which I can just sort of see there. From my knee down is hanging on by some of the skin. And my left foot had a hole almost the size of a baseball through the middle of it. I was badly burnt. I had body armor on, but I was badly burnt everywhere else. My left thumb had almost come off as well. I was bleeding a lot from the head. What I think had happened, when the second blast hit, I think I got the damage to my eye. I can't see from my left eye now, as well as a matchbox-sized shrapnel in my neck. And then I think as I had just gotten out of the car, I was then thrown away and got the more serious injuries to my legs. So I was sitting on the ground, totally dazed. I wasn't feeling any pain at that point. And Pierre was lying a few feet away from me. And he didn't look injured to me. There was no bleeding from him. And immediately Pierre said, Russian drones, don't move. There are Russian drones. Kind of lay there for a little bit, maybe five, 10 minutes. And then I said, I've got to go, Pierre. I'm badly injured. Something's got to happen. And he just said, don't move to the Russians. We couldn't get any cell phone reception. All of the cell towers had been jammed or blown up. So I've been trying to get signal on my phone. I actually took a picture of my leg. And then I realized that I didn't want my family to see the last picture that I took. Was that if I died? So I deleted it. Never asked, never tried to get it back either. And then I just realized that we had to find a way out. We had to get saved. And I never thought that I was going to die, to be honest. I just knew that we had to get out of there. And a car finally drove past. And I start screaming and waving at it. And it didn't see us. It just kept going. And I said, it's a car. we got to try and move. And again, he said, they're Russians. And I said, Pierre, it doesn't matter. I've got to go because I'm badly injured. And I start dragging myself back up towards the road, pulling myself along. And about 10 minutes later, the same car came back. Ukrainian special forces, some officers, and they were going up towards the front lines. And they'd had car problems. And just so happened that their engine didn't work. They turned and they came back. And at that point, I dragged myself further up and they came by. And I just threw whatever I could get in my hands at the van. And the next thing I know, someone's grabbed me, pulling me along the ground, throw me into the back of the van. Off we went. And I've spoken to the Ukrainian soldier who saved me that day. We've become quite good friends. And he said that he pulled me in the van. Then he went to see Pierre. And Pierre at that point had died. Pierre bled out. He had a shrapnel to his femoral artery. They found an ambulance that was at the next checkpoint. Next thing I know, I got an injection and I was out. I wake up in this hospital. It all looks so clean in my eyes about six hospital beds and the one opposite me there was someone lying in it and there were these nurses who were smiling away so i assumed i was in russia i assumed that i'd been taken by the russians and i was in there so i'm thinking well what am i going to do i'm in russia i've been caught someone came in with my state department card i'd been covering the state department so i had a press badge from there i thought he was russian he was shouting he was saying who are you who are you so i thought well i'm definitely in russia now so I just sat there for a while and I saw the guy opposite me, this other patient, and I saw his sheets, the bed sheets started to lift. So then I assumed the guy was pointing a gun at me. So I was living in this spy world at the time, just figured I've got to somehow save me. And then at that point, Rich Jaddick, Dr. Jaddick from Save Our Allies walked in and he said, Hey, Ben, you want to get out of here? I said, Absolutely, let's go now. And I said, But by the way, that guy over there, I think he's Russian and he's pointing a gun at us. He laughed at me. And then we managed to find a way out of Kyiv. But it was, I mean, a day where you have to go and experience so many different things in life. You feel the pain and you feel emotions that you've never felt. The beginning of the next chapter of our lives.
1: So the Ukrainian that you said saved you at the point where you were injured. One of the things that we've learned in past conflicts is stopping bleeding, stabilizing patients is really important. And there are some adjuncts that we've kind of rediscovered like tourniquets. Do you know if that Ukrainian used anything specific to help your bleeding to get you to the hospital?
0: No. I mean, he said there was shelling in the area and he just grabbed me, threw me in, and we kept going. I usually have a cat tourniquet with me, but wasn't on me at the time and also didn't know that Pierre was injured either. That's the question that you have to ask yourself a lot. I always wonder, what if I dragged myself towards Pierre rather than towards the car that passed could I then have seen that he was bleeding? We've done that training so many times over as well, but at the time, didn't know he was injured.
2: So when you were in that Ukrainian hospital, when you weren't sure where you were, what type of care were you getting at that time?
0: Well, I know that I'd had five surgeries straight away. They amputated my leg straight away, my right leg just below the knee. They'd obviously, I'd had an operation on my left foot, my left hand, my eye. They'd left the shrapnel in my neck because they were afraid of taking that out at that point. The first hospital, they did it with head torches on. They were so afraid of the Russian bombs at the time, There was a total curfew, that they did it with as little light as they could. And they just did it in one of these small military hospitals. And then I was moved to one of the bigger hospitals inside Kiev itself. I couldn't tell you exactly the operations I had there. They didn't have any more pain medication for me when I left. And so as we started to work our way out, that's when the pain really started to grow was after that. The city was basically surrounded by Russian forces. And we found out that the only way to get out, we found out through intelligence sources that the Polish prime minister was on the first visit to see Zelensky, the secret visit. And if we could get to the train station in Kiev in something like 40 minutes, then the Polish prime minister had agreed to take me out. So we had this rush through Kyiv itself in a city that was on total lockdown, 72-hour curfew. And at each checkpoint, the ambulance was held down. Everyone was emptied. And they'd open up to check all my wounds because they thought we could have been Russian Spetsnets coming in. So at that point, I mean, that was when things started to get pretty bad for me. We spent about 10 hours on the train out. And then as soon as we crossed into Poland, that's when I was picked up by the U.S.,
1: how long were you in Ukraine after the injury? Two days. One of your physicians here in San Antonio, Jill already is a, a really good friend of ours. And he told us a little bit about the interesting evacuation route from Poland to Germany, Launchdul, back to San Antonio. What do you remember about that journey?
0: First of all, I guess I was picked up when a Black Hawk to a, a small hospital, I think on a base that the US had some planes. I remember my first checkup then and there, that was like the first time that a U.S. doctor had a quick look at me. And that was only about half an hour or so, but that was the first time that I really felt that I was in really safe, good hands. We then flew to Landstuhl. Every time something like that happened, I knew that I was entering just a more secure, more safe environment. Straight away in Landstuhl, we started to talk about the surgeries that I might have had to have straight away. But I also started to hear a lot of stories about all of the U.S. victims that had gone through door. And early on, I realized that the kind of injuries that I had were the same injuries that they had seen time and time again. Like There was no better place to be than there. Being a journalist, spent most of my time trying to ask questions about it, about where I was, and started to hear about all the times from 2007 onwards when sometimes there weren't enough beds for some of the patients coming in. But I remember that those first few days were a blur. We had to talk about how much of my left foot to amputate. There was a big discussion about, should we try and save a little bit more of it, but then risk losing even more? Or should we cut it down further and then know for certain that it would be saved? And I said, take as much as you have to if we know that you'll save the rest of it. While I was in Lanzstuhl, and I was there for, I think, 10 days, all in all. And I was taken to a German eye hospital and they gave me a corneal transplant. That was just about, I suppose, the body just coming to terms with what had happened. And when the pain meds kicked in, I remember nights were really difficult. Trying to find a balance between being composmentous, but also not feeling the pain. And I remember in the morning, I'd always say, look, that was too much pain meds last night. I felt my mind was losing it. So pull me back a bit. But then pretty soon after, got to put me back on the pain meds. It's finding that balance about where you are and staying sane. I've just felt so comforted by the people around me, the nurses, the doctors who talked to me about everything, who were calm and patient and explained things to me. And they were so kind and so helpful, not just to me, but to my family as well. And a lot of this is about my injuries, but it's also about how families go through this. It's about making sure that what comes afterwards is manageable. My wife felt that too. So she was helped in a huge amount by the expertise that they all had in L'Anstral. I look back at it and I just think it was the grounding for me. It was the beginning of this incredible medical journey that I would go on.
1: We've talked to people who've been injured pretty critically in the past. And one of the primary things on their mind when they're consciously thinking about it is their family, obviously. When was the first time after the injury that you were able to contact your family or that they were aware that you were alive or had been injured?
0: News went out quite quickly from the Ukrainian intelligence that there had been an attack that two journalists were dead, Pierre and Sasha, and they released a picture of my congressional press pass. I think my wife found out five hours later, five, six hours after the attack itself, but they didn't know who had survived and who had died. So I know that there was a period where they were trying to find me, trying to find which hospital I was in, where they didn't know. My wife knew that something had happened that some people were dead, but she didn't know if it was me or not. But it was when I was on the train out the next day that I called her for the first time. So I called her probably a day and a half after the attack, maybe about a day after the attack as I was heading out, just told her that I was fine. I said, I'm alive, I'm fine. Whatever we have to go through now, we'll go through together. But just said, I'm coming home. Whatever it takes, I said, I'm coming home again.
1: And was she able to meet you in Germany?
0: Yeah, she came to Landstuhl. So she saw me there the day after I arrived.
1: At what point did you kind of get the full understanding, maybe not full, but a pretty good understanding of the extent of your injuries and what the long term was going to be?
0: Very early on, I think I knew straight away, but it was never a question or an issue for me. Your body just enters and your mind enters just a stay alive zone where whatever you got to do, you'll just do. I think I was very lucky that I never worried that I just embraced it that I said, whatever I've got to do, I'll do. I knew the leg was gone immediately. I knew that straight after the attack. And you found out about the left foot. The first day I was in launch that that was going to go. It was just about trying to think about one thing at a time. It wasn't about thinking about the overwhelming, overlarging picture, which I think might start to worry you. It was just whatever I'm told to do, I'll do it. And you have to put your faith 100% in the doctors. They know what to do. They know the best way. And I didn't. And so I resigned very early on to just doing whatever I was asked, however I was asked to do it with absolutely no grimness at all for me. I was going to do whatever I had to, and I was going to do it with a smile on my face and I was going to give it 100%. You hand yourself over, you hand your life over to these incredible doctors and nurses and they have to lead you. They have to show you what's needed. So it's teamwork. You have to work with them. They have to work with you.
2: Tell us about your pathway from Launchstool to San Antonio. How did they decide which center to send you to and how did you get there?
0: There was a lot of discussion at Launchstool whether to go to Walter Reed or to Bampsy. We'd spoken to a number of people who had been at both. And of course, everyone said the one they'd been to was amazing. I knew that whichever one was going to be great. And I knew that the medical care was going to be the best I could get. We initially decided Walter Reed. And then out of nowhere, there was a fire in like, the computer system at the ICU. And for like a day, they couldn't take any new patients. And that just happened to be as I was leaving. Then the decision was to go to BAMPSI. And also I learned that the injury that had to be treated most quickly with the burns, and the BAMPSI had a really specialized, one of the, just the top burn center. I think that was the thing that really decided that that's where we would go. We made up that decision and C-17 took me over there. That was maybe one of the worst parts of the entire experience was that C-17 ride. I was just in a really weird mental place and I was hallucinating and I thought that there was like a sword fight on board and there was someone trying to bring down the plane and I thought my legs, one of them had turned into an oak tree. The other one was a ballet slipper and I kept asking people to take pictures of my legs because I thought they were changing. I was just in a pretty bad sort of paranoid place and it was freezing of course and you're strapped to one of these gurneys it felt like a metal sheet, and they pile this U over you, over your chest, so you're totally held down. You can't move. for like 24 hours that I was ultimately tied to that thing. The people with me were amazing, and they were trying to do everything they could, but it was just a difficult mental place for me. We landed, the doors opened on the C-17, and the first guy walking in was Joe, Dr. Alderetti, and there he was at the end of my gurney while I was hooked up. And he just said hi, but then just started looking straight away at the leg. That was another one of those key moments. He just gave me so much confidence. Just said, don't worry, you're with us now. I know that you've been fighting really hard and we're going to get you through this. And I just felt great. I just know I'm with the best of the best. Went straight in to Bamsi. First thing that you do is they just put you on a metal table and they just strip you naked and then they just go over every inch of you. And that's another one of those moments where I just felt like I'd been born again. It was like, Whatever you got to do, go for it. Take a look, do whatever you've got to. I'm all yours now. Whatever you have to do, I'm on board. And that's where that started.
2: I spoke to several of your physicians, in addition to Joe, in order to sort of try to capture the moments that you were at, Bamsey. One of the things that they told me was that when they walked into the room, they wanted to know what you put in your Cheerios because you seemed like you had so much energy every morning. You were ready to go. And it's just like you wanted to seize the day take us through that
0: recovery process at bamsey i wanted to go home to my family i wanted to help out as much as i could whether it was that or whether it's going out with my kids in london or going to work like i will find a way to try and enjoy everything there's some beautiful things in everything you do whether that's appreciating the care that you're given or the hospital you're in it's about looking for those and trying to enjoy those and i can't think of anything worse than to just be not be trying or not be doing everything you can or not giving it your all. For me, that was just the only way to do it. And I think it helps an awful lot, but you've got to help them too. And that's a simple way of doing it. But the first few weeks there were difficult as well, because I remember I couldn't move. What did they say? Like my muscles is sort of atrophied or so I couldn't move my left leg. And I just remember those first few weeks just thinking, all right, well, I've just got to start off by trying to move my leg a bit. and i move it by an inch one day, and maybe I could move it a tiny bit more the next day and just keep doing it. And if someone said I could sit on the side of my bed or I could do something, I'd do it. I'd just try and do all of it, just focusing it one day at a time.
1: By this time, you've had multiple surgeries in Ukraine along the way in launch tool. You come into San Antonio What other surgeries were required to get you back on the road to recovery once you got to Brook Army Medical Center?
0: One of the big discussions, which didn't happen in the end, was whether or not to extend my tibia. I had a very short below-the-knee amputation, and there was some thinking that the best long-term solution was to maybe try and extend that. And I know Joe was talking about extending it with my other tibia, or I think he was then going to maybe do it with some titanium. So I thought that's what we were going to do. I thought that was the big one that we were preparing for. And in the end, a few people just said, he's doing so well, let's just try and make him walk with a really short, small, below the knee amputation, see how well he does. I was very lucky that the leg they've built me works really well. I think they did a lot for my hand as well. My thumb had been really badly damaged, shattered my carpal, and I think that I'd lost a lot of it and muscles were gone. And Dr. Sabag basically rebuilt the thumb and then she took a skin flap from my elbow and took it all the way down and rebuilt my thumb with it. It's absolutely incredible that I've got a hand I can use now. And then the day after the surgery, she came in and she said, because of the skin flap, there's a lot of blood going to your hand, but the veins aren't there yet. And not a lot of it is not draining so quickly. So they took out this little glass jar, said, but we've got a good solution for you. And she popped a couple of leeches on it. That sounds medieval to me. I didn't know we were still doing that.
1: Remember, they were sword fighting on the Cat from the C-17.
0: Yeah, <laughs> definitely. The first couple of leeches, I was looking at my hand. It was just all blood. And I thought, what are these? They'd obviously drink as much blood as they could. And then when they were an inch or two long and really thick, they'd drop off. And this just happened day and night for like a week, nonstop. I started to quite like the leeches. Got a bit sad to see them go at the end, but whatever you got to do, you do it and you do it with a smile on your face.
2: What did you find was your biggest challenge during this recovery process?
0: It's hard to think of one, to be honest. There were some hard days where the pain was pretty bad and some of the skin grafts on my back, they just went raw. That wasn't an injury I picked up in the attack. That was just from a normal skin graft, but that was really annoying. So for like two months, I just had a totally raw back. And was just trying to deal with that. I think it pays tribute to the treatment. I think that they put so many different things together. It's not like you do one surgery and then you move on to the next step and the next step. There are so many things happening simultaneously. That's why they're such experts in this polytrauma accidents and how they can treat them so well. Because you're doing all of them at the same time. And I just always knew there was more to do. The eyes, they were quite painful sometimes. Because the corneal transplant I got in Germany was starting to defect. The pressure in my eye was very high. The eye doctor came in one day and they said, look, your eye's looking really bad at the moment, but we got something that might help it. <laughs> and I said, oh, good, what's that? And they said, well, we're just going to sew it shut. And I thought, oh, all right. I said, when? They said, now. And I just remember, I said, like, really? And they just came at me with this needle, putting a needle through your eyelid. That wasn't great either. I got through that as well. And it was all fine, to be honest. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's strange to say that, but I look back at it and I'd say to everyone, like, I'm really enjoying this. Like, this is an experience and I know you're getting me better and I'm working really hard and everyone I'm surrounded by is optimistic and positive. And I genuinely enjoyed it. I enjoyed trying to get through more hurdles and over hurdles. And I just wanted to do as much as I could.
1: So one of the things that in my career, I had the opportunity to be in San Antonio for a while and during a lot of those really combat heavy years in 2007 and on. And the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio, right next to Brooke Army Medical Center, does some amazing things with patients who have similar injuries and have lost limbs and need prosthetics. Tell us a little about getting back To walking and using that reconstructed thumb. What kind of stuff did they do to help you learn how to
0: do that? Well, first of all, I was amazed at how quickly they were building a leg for me. I mean, it was a matter of a few weeks. I mean, it was three weeks. And I remember John and Dell over at CFI came over and they were measuring my stump. Joe said early on, look, the best thing is for you to get up and get walking as quickly as possible. That helps a lot. They knew exactly what to do, they knew how to fit the leg properly, they knew how to get a starter leg going just moving at first, moving those legs first of all. Then I remember the day I took my first step, just an incredible day. And it was a day that I remember thinking, very few people in life get to appreciate learning to walk. I just remember thinking how lucky I was to be experiencing this. Like I'm going to go out and I'm one of those people that gets to appreciate learning how to walk again. So I love doing that. And I remember every day I could maybe take a step further or I could move in a slightly different way And if I did something on one day, I wasn't going to stop the next until I'd done something more. But CFI was incredible. And the great thing about CFI is that you're suddenly put into this building with a whole lot of other people who have had similar injuries to you, who can talk to you about what it's like, who can give you a heads up about any of the tricky things that could happen. So I love that every day. The hand took a lot longer. First of all, obviously, they just patched it up and they rebuilt it with a lot of pins. But then a couple months later, they took out a couple inches of my hip bone and put that in. So my hand was really under reconstruction for most of my stay there. And so that was the one thing that a few weeks before we left, I got the cast off and I was starting to move it and I couldn't move my hand well. My fingers weren't moving well. My thumb doesn't move much. But bit by bit every day, we really forced each finger. We kept moving it some more and it's become totally functional. I can't bend the thumb but I can use it to grip things and hold on to things. That's something that I never thought I'd been able to do again. The hand has come together really well, the legs also. Of course, on my right leg, I have a, obviously just a below the knee amputation, but my left, where I lost most of the foot, is a little bit harder because I now need to have a, what's called an idea, which they made at CFI. And it fits around my knee at the top, and then there's a metal bar that goes down the back of my leg. And then underneath, I've got a basically a fake ankle in there. And a hard sole to my foot. So that allows me to walk without the foot. But I actually think that it's a slightly harder injury to deal with than the loss of the leg. I'd pop the leg on now and it feels like a normal leg, but that left one is a little bit harder. I'd like to be able to move the ankle. And I think when it comes to perhaps looking to run or do any kind of more sports, there are some people who said maybe at some point you have to have another amputation down there. Some people just choose to take another prosthetic rather than just have basically no foot. So we'll see. If that eventually happens. But yeah, both of them had to work hand in hand. It was like teamwork. The left leg had to be totally aligned with the progress that was happening on my prosthetic.
2: So, for the right leg, you ended up having osteointegration so that you could do the clip on prosthetic?
0: No, it's a vacuum socket. So, we tried all three of them. We tried the normal fit, and then we went to the pinned fit, and then at the end to the vacuum. I love it. That's been really good. Obviously, the stump has been changing size. Since it's happened, it's getting smaller all the time. There are days where I have to make it fit a little better, put another sock on it, but it's doing the job. And also, one of the other things that you learn early on is that life is forever going to have some niggles or some pains. And if you're going to let those bother you, then you're going to be grumpy forever. So for me, any little pain that I feel in the day, I just write off as something that I'm going to have to feel. And that's the way it is. Makes a lot of it just go away. You just accept it as part of your living and that's it. We
1: talked to a previous guest who was injured in Afghanistan and was able to return to run and ran races using the Ideo. But we also talked to another guest who has prosthetics. He has above the knees amputations. And he was telling us about all kinds of different electronic assisted, really high-tech prosthetics. What kind of things have you been offered or do you use for your below knee amputation as far as prosthetics?
0: I've got a really simple one at the moment. It's just one blade that goes down into an ankle, which moves a fair amount left and right, but not so much up and down. The benefit for me with this one is that it's very light. And because I've got a very short below the knee amputation, it means that only a tiny little bit of the remaining leg has to lift the whole leg up and down. Hills are very difficult for me, for example. Real trouble going down. But there are ankles which have chips in it that can help you with that. They can do that quite well. And I will try one of those coming up but that can add up to a kilo of weight onto the leg. And so again, it's just weighing up whether I want that ankle movement or whether I want to keep a really light leg. You mentioned the running. It was always a point I said early on, I said, right, I should be running. Let's start running. And they all said, no, you can't run. You've got to hit this first. You need to be walking well. Your gait has to be perfect or else it'll lead to problems down the line. But I remember they put me on one of these, it's like a vacuum running machine where it lifts your weight off. So it feels like you're only walking on about 20% of your weight. And I just thought, well, no one's looking. I said, I'm just going to crank this machine up and go for a run. I crank it up. I take two steps and my ankle just goes. I'm like falling off the edge, screaming out at someone to come and save me. So I've listened to them. I've given it a couple more tries since, but not ready yet. But I will be soon.
2: We've covered many of your injuries thus far. You've had the significant burns, the injury to your hand that required reconstruction, and then your right leg as well as your left foot and your eye. A couple other ones that I know that you sustained was you had some damage to your hearing, and you also mentioned that you had the injury to your neck that didn't have surgery in Ukraine, but then I didn't hear what the resolution of that was. Can you fill us in on potential hearing and then your neck injury?
0: It's funny. I'm not exactly sure when the shrapnel was taken out of my neck. I know it was in launch so I guess it was one of the first things they did. For hearing, I think some of the bones in my left ear were blown. When I'm in a crowded environment, then I sometimes find it hard to hear. When there's background noise, then it really throws me off. And I'm just starting to learn to try and sit on the left of people so that my good ear is facing them. But there is some talk about rebuilding the bones that were broken. There's some incredible things you can do with the ear as well. That hasn't happened yet. I don't think it's essential right now, but I'll certainly be looking at that. The burns also were a big problem, as you say. And I certainly know my left leg was really difficult. And you ask one of the hard parts. And it was just the constant skin grafts again and again, because the skin wouldn't take and I'd had to do them multiple times. Those showers as well. At first, you're just lying on a plate and they basically come and hose you down. But I remember just sitting there and just like rivers of blood. and You just sit there every day, you're trying to see if it's getting any better. And to this day, if I knock my left leg at all, sometimes even just knock it into a table or chair, it bleeds. The skin is so fragile still that I'm just constantly walking with a medipack on me. I've got that down quite quickly. Drag it out, wrap it up, take it off. I've become an expert on dressing wounds, but the burns were pretty bad because all the skin on my left leg, there's no plasticine in it. It just cracks and breaks open a lot behind my knee. If I'm sitting as I am now with my leg bent, it's already totally dried up. If I straighten my leg right now, that'll crack open. It's just doing that. There are some laser surgery that I'm going to be having here, some CO2 lasers. That will hopefully give me a little bit more flexibility in there, but I think I will forever just have really fragile skin on my left leg. I'm just being careful of that.
1: On war docs, in fact, most of the guests have experienced war. It's a horrible place, and people see things and experience things that maybe no one should see or experience, and it's tough. Tell us a little bit about the mental health aspects of your injury and recovery process and the treatment you received in that regard, because there's a lot of folks who wind up coming back from a war with some scars that are not easy to see and just wanted to kind of see what treatment or what experience you had in that regard.
0: I think I've been really lucky. I was speaking to someone at Bamsi, and I was talking to someone in therapy. They said, I think what you've really got is you've got post-traumatic optimism. I think there are two ways of taking it, and I understand both of them. One is to really understand that it has affected your image, your ability to live the way you used to, people's relationships with you, and that can be heartbreaking. The other is to realize that you've still got the things that matter to you. You've got your family there. You're still able to walk and move. The way I see it, had I been standing an inch to the left or an inch to the right, I could have been totally blind. I could have had brain damage. And I think that compared to some of the people who have injuries like that, I'm really lucky. I'm so lucky that I'm still here, that my mind is fine. I had a traumatic brain injury and frontal contusion, and sometimes I find it hard to remember specific words, but I learn ways to go around that. If I come up against a word I can't think of, I go a different way. I remember someone coming into my room, a former patient he had lost both of his legs in Afghanistan, he was a friend of a friend. And he came in, he was telling me, about his story, and he was giving me tips, and he was the most jovial, lighthearted, strong guy I've ever spoken to. And out of nowhere, he said, of course, I've tried to take my life a couple of times, and I just was totally shocked that there are these hidden wounds that people can't heal, and that can be with you for a long time. I think I was very lucky because I wasn't, for example, in the military, and these injuries haven't stopped the work that I was doing. I could understand if I was a physical person and I needed my legs to get around or to serve, that that would have stopped. The life that I knew would have stopped. I've always thought that the life I had continued. Like I can continue working and continue doing the things I did before. So from that perspective, I'm really lucky. Someone talked to me for a while, a few times about guilt, about whether or not I felt survivor's guilt that the other guys died and I didn't. And I think about that a lot. And I think about the attack every day. And sometimes when I'm having a tough day or I'm thinking that my morning routines are difficult and I've just got to wake up every morning and you realize that you've lost your limbs again, then I think back to the day of the attack. And I think back to the moment that I was sitting there and I try and picture it as well as I can. And it gives me so much strength to know that I got through that. And if you can get through that, you can get through anything. That's what I do. I try and find all the advantages in it I can just keep trying to make the best out of life and keep trying to help people the way so many people help me. That's who I'm grateful for. It's all the people who basically saved my life. The least I can do is try and give that back, and pass that on to other people.
2: So you came through the military healthcare system as a civilian. What is something that perhaps you didn't appreciate as a civilian before you entered the military system that you think that others may appreciate now that you've gone through the military healthcare system?
0: Yeah, it's difficult because I can't compare it really to military medicine before. What I will say is that I know that there can be nowhere else where you have these multiple treatments going on at the same time. And I was amazed at how this huge machine was able to operate with the hand, the burns, the prosthetics, the eye, the hearing, all simultaneously. I don't think that could have happened anywhere else. I also just think that there's such an incredible sense of duty and hard work that you find in the military, that that comes across. And I felt that I was part of something bigger when I was in there. I was so immensely proud to be among and with military medicine that I really enjoyed doing that. And I was very lucky to have been given an exemption from the Secretary of Defense to be allowed to be treated inside the military. It was just going through this journey that so many other people have gone through, so many other soldiers have gone through similar injuries. Where else in the world could I find somewhere that had that level of people who I could speak to? So I think the fact that I was surrounded by those people was enormously helpful. I also remember that there was a bit of concern. The only time I had some concern was that that now that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are over, that the budget is drying up. And there were quite a few people who were worried that the funding that they'd had, that the unlimited research they'd been able to put towards prosthetics and other treatments was not going to continue for much longer. And even while I was there, I think there was a big budget cut. So I know some people are a bit concerned that they don't keep up that level of progress, which you obviously you get when you get the budgets that happen when you have war.
2: What are your plans for the future? And what do you have on the horizon?
0: I've just been loving being home. I think I take so many things that I once took for granted. I now really appreciate whether that's just taking my kids to school, which I would never have been done with my job before whether it's having dinner with them, whether that's just walking around and spending time in the park with the dog, like all those things, which I never had time. I was just working constantly. I've now realized how important some of those things are. So for the last few months that I've been here, I decided that that's what I was going to focus on. I was going to first and foremost, spend the time with the family. I'd been away from them for five months or so A bouncy. That was the priority and that everything forward in life would be based with that at the top and everything else after it. I would say that before this happened, it would have been my career. I was so driven. I knew what I wanted to do, where I was going to do it. And no matter what I had to do, the hours I had to do, that was what I was doing. And I loved it. That's the one change that I've noticed now is that that's going to come second. So I am looking ahead and I'm looking forward to getting back to work. And of course, I'm talking to Fox about various things we can do. So I can't wait to start again, but I'm not rushing into it. And I think that'll start next year. What I'd love to do is I'd love to continue telling the stories of people who helped me. I'd love to talk about American exceptionalism around the world, the people who came and saved me, the people who put their own lives at risk to come in and get me, the people and the doctors who built me back, who put me together. I was just overwhelmed by the kindness of so many people. And whatever I do in the future, I want to keep telling those stories, the stories of people like that, and make sure that we remember that it's about the good as much as it is the bad. As a journalist, I've spent years going around basically telling stories about the horrors that happen around the world. That's my job. I've been a war correspondent, and I would like to find something that shifted in that. There was a lot of talk about going back to Ukraine myself. I know that Zelensky is happy to see me when I go. And at first, I thought, I'm on the first plane I can. I'm getting straight back to Ukraine. And I've actually had a change of heart, and I've realized that I couldn't do that right now for my family. I feel like it would be a selfish thing for me to say to them, just so I have to go complete a circle, I'm going to go back into a war zone. Is there anything I could put them through that right now? We'll see what happens down the line. But right now, it's about focusing on the people who saved me and all the good that's out there.
1: So on War Docs, our listeners include those people who are at the tip of the spear, the medics, the corpsmen that are saving the lives on the battlefield. We have listeners who are part of that CARE air transport team, we got listeners who are at stool, taking care of patients from all of the combat zones throughout that area of responsibility. We've got listeners from Walter Reed, from Bamsey. If you could just tell them a message, what would you want to say to those folks that are listening?
0: I would just say that without people like them, we'd be worse off. I would say that the life, the things that they give back to people make a huge difference. And I told my nurses and doctors every day, I said that you guys are the amazing ones because they are. They're the ones who gave me back my life. They gave me back my family. They gave me back the dreams I had. And they get to watch it when you're at your worst, when you are just broken and bloodied and beaten up. They are there. And the comfort and the expertise that they have, that passes on. We noticed that as patients. I noticed every single one of them. And every single one of them I was so grateful for. So I just want them all to know just how grateful I am, but also just how impressed I am. I've traveled the world, and there is nowhere, nowhere like the US, where you get this sense of real, total, overwhelming expertise. I mean, it's incredible. I sit here with an English accent, but as a proud American, and I felt that way from the the day I was born, that I was just so lucky to be there, and I'm thankful to everyone.
1: We've been speaking with uh, Fox correspondent Benjamin Hall on War Docs podcast. And one of the things I recently was made aware of was that you were awarded a Courage Award by the Fox Nation Patriots Awards. And from just speaking to you today, I can definitely see that that was a very well-deserved award. And we wanted to just thank you for sharing your insights and inspiring story with our audience.
0: Really pleased to be here. Thank you for what you do. I think the more people need to know the stories of the people who are helping. That's so important. So you do that at War Docs. I'm avid listener myself now, so keep doing it. And just thank you to everyone. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it.
1: War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts. And rate and review this episode. And share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.